This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Week 40 working from home still for many. It was a week with another reality check. As virus cases, hospitalizations and deaths rose to record levels in some places, and as vaccine distribution began and then hit some snags. Progress overall, but with a lot of work to be done when it comes to both COVID-19 and our economy. This was all on our mind with our conversations this week, including one with Dr. Stephen Corwin, President and CEO of New York Presbyterian Hospital, who was at the center of New York's coronavirus crisis last spring. He provided some perspective on today's cases. We'll also hear from the Carlisle Group's David Rubenstein on his conversations with Jeff Bezos, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Oprah, and more. It's all in his book, How to Lead. Also, speaking of books, how about the best business books of 2020? Here's a hint. They're not all business books. We start, though, with this week's cover story about the urban exodus that's happening as a result of working from home and how the pandemic migration could reshape the American economy. For more, Bloomberg Quick Take anchor Tim Stenovec and I talked with Noah Buhire, finance reporter at Bloomberg News, and Bloomberg Businessweek editor Jill Weber. We've been watching this trend um, just evolve throughout the pandemic, and, and it started with people, you know, basically that urban exodus, people leaving cities and going to the suburbs or or the country. And then instead of renting some of those places, people started buying. And and then, you know, the employers started to catch up with, with it eventually. And that's really kind of the new element. And I think the one that, that really distinguishes Noah's story has been, you know, the, the shift was at first it was just the real estate implications. But now it's about the pay implications. And Noah's reporting actually centers on a, store, on a company Redfin, the real estate company, and they actually almost become the vehicle for the story. So, Noah, tell us about this trend and and what we've learned through Redfin. Yeah, well, I think you really you you really captured it. I mean, this is a this is a trend in HR policy right now. Uh, we, we've we've had this massive experiment in working from home, and I think a lot of companies have found that it works for people. Um, it's not perfect. There are for sure some drawbacks. Um, but as, as we've gone through the months, companies, uh, I think responding to what they're hearing from their workforces have realized that they can allow for a much greater uh, amount of remote work um, when the pandemic's finally over. And that's forced them to really reckon with uh, policies and how, how, you, how you actually make this work in a way that's it's fair and reasonable for your business. And um, really, it's just opened up a giant can of worms because, uh, you know, the cost of labor and the cost of living just vary so radically across the U.S. that um, you could create situations where, you know, if someone moved from the Bay Area to Phoenix or to Atlanta, they, 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 um, and they, they carried their salary with them, they just, um, you'd create a situation where, um you were paying way above market, essentially. Okay, so the Redfin thing that's so interesting, though, is that once people sort of moved out uh, and the company had to grapple with this, and they were actually proactive, I think, in, in having a plan, basically. Um, and yeah. they basically realized that in order to implement this, they needed to have some version of like a localized pay policy, right? So, so tell us yeah, about I mean, how I, they actually went about I, implementing that. Yeah, so on some levels, like, companies have been doing this for years, right? It's just 
um, uh, like they, they've thought about, well, if we open a, a, a new office in a new city, what do we pay people? The, what, what's interesting is that, that Redfin and I think a lot of other companies, you know, had to do this on a mass scale. So what Redfin did is they got a bunch of data on cost of labor and cost of living. Um, they're, they're a real estate company. They're in the home brokerage business. So they're, they're pretty attuned to this stuff and have a lot of in-house data. But they got external data as well. Um, to try and craft a policy of what's fair. And, 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 you know, the data informed their decisions, but there were a lot of judgment calls at the end of the day. And, you know, they're still tweaking and trying to make sure, um, you know, their policy works for their people and that they can continue to recruit and, and retain the best people. Because at the end of the day, that's, that's really what this is about for, for companies is, you know, there's, even with unemployment where it is today, there for certain kinds of jobs, there's still an insatiable appetite um, and demand for people. And um, you know, as companies compete for talent, they they want to make sure they're paying the right amount in the markets where those people want to be. No, there, there, there's something you explore in the piece: the the economic implications of this, the idea that people are leaving higher cost areas, moving to areas that aren't as expensive. And, and with that, of course, if they're leaving a city or a state, with them goes tax base, with them goes spending in that local economy. What are the long-term implications of, of this migration? Well, I don't think we know yet mm. is, is, is the short, and short non-answer. But um, it certainly doesn't seem like it's going to be helpful for high-cost places like New York and San Francisco as they, you know, as the whole country tries to uh, dig itself out of, of, of the economic implications of the pandemic. I mean, it's not helpful when you have uh, high earners leave your city. Uh, but at the same, by, you know, at the same time, like we just don't know at, the, at this point how extensive this is going to be. And, and there are some real benefits to um, living and being near where the action is, where there are other people in your industry and, um, you know, that could be a draw for people to come back to some of these high-cost places. And that was our cover story this week in the magazine. That was Noah Buhai, our finance reporter at Bloomberg News, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber, joining Bloomberg Quick Take anchor Tim Stenovic and me. Working from home, man, that is something we have talked so much about this year because of the pandemic. And coming up in the next hour, keep in mind, we're going to hear more about working from home, its impact on our lives and our brains. Microsoft is keeping track of that. First up, though, straight ahead. We're seeing a significant increase in COVID cases. Another very tough week for the nation because of the virus. The CEO of New York Presbyterian, home to New York's first confirmed COVID case last spring, shares some perspective on today. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. This week was another tough one in the battle against the coronavirus. We saw the first hiccups in the distribution of a COVID-19 vaccine in the U.S. The headlines were equally difficult globally. With that in mind, Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovec and I caught up with Dr. Stephen Corwin, president and CEO of New York Presbyterian Hospital, who the New York Times called in the spring the CEO at the center of New York's coronavirus crisis. The first confirmed case in the New York area was in one of New York Presbyterian's hospitals last spring. Dr. Corwin began, though, with what today looks like. We're seeing a, a significant increase in COVID cases. We're at about 25% of what our peak was uh, in, uh, in the April timeframe, and we expect it quickly to go to the 30, 
5% range uh, by Christmas time, if not a little bit after. So we're seeing a significant uptick. The good news uh, is uh, that uh, people are less sick with the virus uh, as we see it. During April, we had a mortality rate in the hospital of about 20%. Extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now it's down to about 5%, which is still horrific, uh, especially if it's your loved one. Uh, but but much less than than April. So I would say we've got a rough four to six weeks ahead of us, uh, but um, I I think that uh, we'll get through it, especially as we start vaccinating people. Quick follow-up. Do you anticipate that we're going to get back to those levels in terms of hospitalizations um, and cases? Um, Well, we are there, but in terms of hospitalizations that we saw back in the spring? We hope not. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're clearly mindful of that. Um, our modeling would show that we would peak in the, in the middle of January uh, unless we have uh, a really terrible Christmas season in terms of people traveling and avoiding social distancing and masking. We still haven't seen the full peak of, of what happened in Thanksgiving. So wow. that, that really is a variable that, uh, that, that uh, relates to this uh, directly. So mm-hmm. uh, certainly no one wants to go back to where the city was in April, and we certainly don't. Right. Uh, and so, uh, again, until we get mass vaccination, masking, social distancing, washing your hands, all the things you keep hearing about become really critical. And I empathize with our elected officials in terms of how much of a lockdown do you need to have versus not. I think a lot of it depends on how much virus is is circulating. Dr. Corwin, why is the mortality rate gone down so much? Is it because of what we've learned, what you've learned since March, since April? Is it because the hospital is not strained in the same way? Is it because of therapeutics? Um, I think First, the answer to your question is I really don't know, to be honest with you. I do think that we certainly know how to take care of the patients better. Um, Remdesivir, steroids, they may not be game changers, but but we know how to use these drugs. Um, uh, With the masking and social distancing, are people getting less of a viral load when they get sick? Mm. Uh, We've certainly seen a shift to a younger demographic who tends to be less sick uh, with the virus. Um, and to your point, uh, any system over, uh, that gets overwhelmed, it becomes more difficult to save lives. So the ability to not get the hospital overwhelmed, uh, I think, plays into it uh, as well. So all of the above, uh, but it's going to take us a while to sort through this. Uh, the I virus make... becoming less virulent, uh, we don't see that, but right. that, that's, that's going to take time for us to figure out. One thing that you just said really struck me, people wearing masks, that you get less of a viral load. I haven't heard that before. What does that mean? Well, remember, uh, you know, uh, masks aren't uh, totally effective, but it helps to it, it helps to filter out particles. And so uh, we use the N95 masks when we're caring for patients, uh, and that clearly prevents uh, inhalation of the virus particles. So wearing a surgical mask not only protects uh, uh, the person that you, you would be breathing on, but also helps to protect you. And if you get less of a viral load, you may have a milder, uh, milder infection than if somebody gave you a full viral load, which is clearly what we saw in the beginning of the pandemic. Hey, what do you make, uh, Dr. Corwin, a new mutation of COVID-19 turned up in, I guess, more than a thousand infected patients in the UK and was being blamed for more rapid spread of the contagion. Does that make you a little nervous? 
It does. I mean, I think that this, uh, we know that the virus has many, many mutations. I mean, this is not the first one. Uh, when people went on holiday this summer, they came back with a variation from Spain, which appeared to be more virulent and caused uh, wider spread. So this is not surprising. Viruses, like anything else, mutate over time. Uh, the fortunate aspect for us vis-a-vis -vis the vaccine is the spike protein is, is, is the key in terms of inducing immunogenicity. And so knowing the spike protein um, and, and developing the mRNA uh, towards the spike protein, I think we're in pretty good shape regardless of the uh, variations now in terms of making sure that uh, that the vaccination will be very effective. Right, because that's what I've heard, that the current vaccines um, still will work on these mutations. Is that correct? That's correct. As far as I know, yes, that's correct. Okay. And I think that it, it, because the spike protein has not changed. Right. So it's not as it's it, the, the mutation profile is not uh, what we see in influenza. Uh, and I think that that's uh, encouraging. And we're very uh, bullish on the mRNA platform and and the vaccine. So, Dr. Corwin, I want to ask you when you're interviewing the time when you were interviewing the Times uh, back in May, you noted that our assumptions around pandemic preparations were flawed. Are there assumptions we are making right now about this wave of the COVID breakout, this other wave, another wave, and about the distribution of the vaccine and the impact that will have? Might some of those assumptions be flawed as well? We grossly underestimated. Uh, pre-pandemic, the amount of protective equi uh, equipment we would need for personnel protective equipment. Uh, we have over 90 days of supply for every major category of that. Uh, we had issues in terms of do we have enough ventilators. Uh, we clearly don't have that issue now. Uh, we know how to create extra ICU beds, and we know how to create staffing models that, that protect our patients. So from that standpoint, uh, we're much better off. Where I think that we can make a mistake as a country is to assume that the vaccine's here, we can let down our guard, and let's go back uh, to business as usual. It's going to take a while for us to get to herd immunity, and so we've got to do two things simultaneously. Be really stringent about the guidelines uh, and, and separating ourselves from each other, as tough as that may be. Um, and let people get vaccinated and educate the population on the vaccine. We have uh, a lot of the population is skeptical of the vaccine. Uh, our uh, populations of color who've been experimented upon in the past are skeptical of the vaccine. So we've really got to educate the population as to the safety and the efficacy of the vaccine. That skepticism is what worries some about our ability to reach herd immunity when it comes to the virus. That was Dr. Stephen Corwin, President and CEO of New York Presbyterian Hospital, joining Bloomberg Quick Take anchor Tim Stenovic and me. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, the pandemic didn't come with a playbook, and yet leaders this year drew on many great books to find their way. That's next in our Pursuits Guide to the Best Business Books of 2020. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. This week was another tough one in the battle against the coronavirus. We saw the first hiccups in the distribution of a COVID-19 vaccine in the U.S. The headlines were equally difficult globally. With that in mind, Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovec and I caught up with Dr. Stephen Corwin, president and CEO of New York Presbyterian Hospital, who the New York Times called in the spring the CEO at the center of New York's coronavirus crisis. The first confirmed case in the New York area was in one of New York Presbyterian's hospitals last spring. Dr. Corwin began, though, with what today looks like. We're seeing a significant increase in COVID cases. 
we're at about 25% of what our peak was uh, in uh, in the April time frame, and we expect it quickly to go to the 30, 35% range uh, by Christmas time, if not a little bit after. So we're seeing a significant uptick. The good news uh, is uh, that uh, people are less sick with the virus uh, as we see it. During April, we had a mortality rate in the hospital of about 20%. Extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it's down to about 5%, which is still horrific, uh, especially if it's your loved one, uh, but but much less than, than April. So I would say we've got a rough four to six weeks ahead of us, uh, but um, I, I think that uh, we'll get through it, especially as we start vaccinating people. Quick follow-up, um, do you anticipate that we're going to get back to those levels in terms of hospitalizations um, and cases? Um, well, we are there, but in terms of hospitalizations that we saw back in the spring? We hope not. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're clearly mindful of that. Um, our modeling would show that we would peak in the, in the middle of January uh, unless we have uh, a really terrible Christmas season in terms of people traveling and avoiding social distancing and masking. We still haven't seen the full peak of, of what happened in Thanksgiving. So wow. that, that really is a variable that, uh, that, that uh, relates to this uh, directly. So mm-hmm. uh, certainly no one wants to go back to where the city was in April, and we certainly don't. Right. Uh, and so, uh, again, until we get mass vaccination, masking, social distancing, washing your hands, all the things you keep hearing about become really critical. And I empathize with our elected officials in terms of how much of a lockdown do you need to have versus not. I think a lot of it depends on how much virus is, is circulating. Dr. Corwin, why is the mortality rate gone down so much? Is it because of what we've learned, what you've learned since March, since April? Is it because the hospital is not strained? in the same way? Is it because of therapeutics? Um, I think, I'll, I, first, the answer to your question is I really don't know, to be honest with you. I, I do think that we certainly know how to take care of the patients better. Um, remdesivir, steroids, they may not be game changers, but, but we know how to use these drugs. Um, uh, with the masking and social distancing, are people getting less of a viral load when they get sick? Uh, we've certainly seen a shift to a younger demographic who tends to be less sick uh, with the virus. Um, and to your point, uh, any system over, uh, that gets overwhelmed, it becomes more difficult to save lives. So the ability to not get the hospital overwhelmed, uh, I think, plays into it uh, as well. So all of the above, uh, but it's going to take us a while to sort through this. Uh, the I virus make- becoming less virulent. Uh, we don't see that, but that, right. that's that's going to take time for us to figure out. One thing that you just said really struck me, people wearing masks, that you get less of a viral load. I haven't heard that before. What does that mean? Well, remember, uh, you know, uh, masks aren't uh, totally effective, but it helps to it, it helps to filter out particles. And so uh, we use the N95 masks when we're caring for patients. Uh, and that clearly prevents uh, inhalation of the virus particles. So wearing a surgical mask not only protects 
the person that you, you would be breathing on, but also helps to protect you. And if you get less of a viral load, you may have a milder, uh, milder infection than if somebody gave you a full viral load, which is clearly what we saw in the beginning of the pandemic. Hey, what do you make, uh, Dr. Corwin, a new mutation of COVID-19 turned up in, I guess, more than 1,000 infected patients in the UK and was being blamed for more rapid spread of the contagion. Does that make you a little nervous? It does. I mean, I think that this, uh, we know that the virus has many, many mutations. I mean, this is not the first one. Uh, when people went on holiday this summer, they came back with a variation from Spain, which appeared to be more virulent and caused uh, wider spread. So this is not surprising. Viruses, like anything else, mutate over time. Uh, the fortunate aspect for us vis-a-vis -vis the vaccine is the spike protein is, is, is the key in terms of inducing immunogenicity. And so knowing the spike protein um, and, and developing the mRNA uh, towards the spike protein, I think we're in pretty good shape regardless of the uh, variations now in terms of making sure that uh, that the vaccination will be very effective. Right, because that's what I've heard, that the current vaccines um, still will work on these mutations. Is that correct? That's correct. As far as I know, yes, that's correct. Okay. And I think that it, it, because the spike protein has not changed. Right. So it's not as it's it, the, the mutation profile is not uh, what we see in influenza. Uh, and I think that that's uh, encouraging. And we're very uh, bullish on the mRNA platform and and the vaccine. So, Dr. Corwin, I want to ask you when you're interviewing the time when you were interviewing the Times uh, back in May, you noted that our assumptions around pandemic preparations were flawed. Are there assumptions we are making right now about this wave of the COVID breakout, this other wave, another wave, and about the distribution of the vaccine and the impact that will have? Might some of those assumptions be flawed as well? We grossly underestimated. Uh, pre-pandemic, the amount of protective equi uh, equipment we would need for personnel protective equipment. Uh, we have over 90 days of supply for every major category of that. Uh, we had issues in terms of do we have enough ventilators. Uh, we clearly don't have that issue now. Uh, we know how to create extra ICU beds, and we know how to create staffing models that, that protect our patients. So from that standpoint, uh, we're much better off. Where I think that we can make a mistake as a country is to assume that the vaccine's here, we can let down our guard, and let's go back uh, to business as usual. It's going to take a while for us to get to herd immunity, and so we've got to do two things simultaneously. Be really stringent about the guidelines uh, and, and separating ourselves from each other, as tough as that may be. Um, and let people get vaccinated and educate the population on the vaccine. We have uh, a lot of the population is skeptical of the vaccine. Uh, our uh, populations of color who've been experimented upon in the past are skeptical of the vaccine. So we've really got to educate the population as to the safety and the efficacy of the vaccine. That skepticism is what worries some about our ability to reach herd immunity when it comes to the virus. That was Dr. Stephen Corwin, President and CEO of New York Presbyterian Hospital, joining Bloomberg Quick Take anchor Tim Stenovic and me. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, the pandemic didn't come with a playbook, and yet leaders this year drew on many great books to find their way. That's next in our Pursuits Guide to the Best Business Books of 2020. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. 
In our next half hour, we're going to double down on books, hearing from the Carlyle Group's David Rubenstein on his new book and talking to everyone from Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos to Oprah and Yo-Yo Ma. In keeping with that, Business Week's Pursuits team put together a list of the best business books this year. And what they ultimately found is that some of the best weren't technically business books, nor published this year, which just makes this list even that more interesting. Bloomberg Pursuits Deputy Editor James Gaddy was behind it all, and he began with how putting it together involves tapping all corners of our Bloomberg team. Yeah, we have the luxury, honestly, of having people all over the world who have contact and resources to talk to some of the top business leaders uh, all over the world. And so we reach out to our reporters and bureaus in Europe and uh, Asia, obviously here in New York. And uh, they come back with a list. We had 52 this this year, actually. And um, as you mentioned, uh, not a lot of them were business (laughs) books as you normally think about it, or even from this year. You know, one of the books that came up was The Great Influenza from way back, Ancient History, 2004. Uh, written by John Barry, but of course, very relevant today yeah. in the history of 1918 pandemic. I have to say, I bought that book this year. And partly, I think it was also, it came up on a, a Bill Gates list of like the five books you have to read. And that was one of them too. Yeah. So, uh, and several people, Axel Hefer, he's been a guest on our show, uh, the managing director mm-hmm. of Trivago, uh, that came up on his list. Yeah. You know, one of the interesting things was uh, that common thread that kind of ran through these selections were people trying to find historical analogies to this, you know, to this uh, various mm-hmm. crises going on today. And, uh, you know, you had uh, people like Jonathan Gray, President and Chief Operating Officer of Blackstone Group, and uh, looking to the 1940 Blitz, yeah. <laughs> uh, the Splendid and the Vile, which, mm-hmm. you know, he described as, uh, you know, looking at Winston Churchill and how he retained this relentless optimism in the face of such insurmountable odds called it a powerful lesson for today's challenges. So that was interesting. You know, we had Roger Ferguson, also president uh, and CEO of TIAA, who mm-hmm. looked to a biography of James A. Baker III called The Man Who Ran Washington. And, you know, he, was, he said it's not a time period, not too long ago, but, uh, you know, you can still see these sort of hyper-partisan politics, the seeds of those things being planted during this period. Uh, you had, uh, let's see, it's interesting, right, to see where leaders go, right? I mean, at times of crisis, mm-hmm. like it's not just like, okay, let me get the leadership 101 book, especially in a year, right, James, that where people said, wait a minute, there is no playbook on this. So it is fascinating to see where they went. Yeah. We reached out to Larry Gagosian, mm-hmm. uh, the gallerist, our gallerist, and uh, he went back and looked at Hollywood uh, mm. and uh, a history of this year that came out called A Big Goodbye. Goodbye. Mm-hmm. and uh, called Chinatown in the last years of Hollywood. And he said, you know, for people who work in the business of art like he does, uh, you know, Robert Evans, producer of that movie, uh, he found new meaning in this quote that he had, which was always to just bet on talent. Huh. And so, some, you know, you have people yeah. going back to these uh, time periods, which, uh, and then one other example was Sam Cobb, CEO of Tipping Point Community. Uh, he went to a piece of historical fiction, called The Cold Millions by Jeff Walters, which was a very popular book this year. Uh, And it goes and looks at the early 20th century, a little-known free speech battle between union organizers and uh, leaders in Washington State. So, yeah, they're they're kind of, you know, the the time periods were very different. Uh, The the protagonists in these books are very, very different. Uh, And it just kind of shows how people are looking for these. these, What we found was, you know, these analogous moments. 
I love like someone like Danielle Boulou. I mean, this has been just a devastating <laughs> year for anyone in the restaurant industry. And the book that he's reading, Dirt, Adventures in Lyon, as a chef in training, father and sleuth looking for the secret of French cooking. <laughs> but it's just funny to see where, you know, like people go. Yeah. yeah. Right? That was a really interesting one. He said, it, you know, it, it took real guts for Bill Buford to go in there and do that. And he, he knows from firsthand experience. Yeah, exactly. Um, I bet, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, we did have a few, uh, you know, typical sort of business uh, books, which, you know, we should call out because, um, you know, in the year that everyone binge watched Netflix, <laughs> you know, uh, Mark Randolph, the uh, one of the founders of Netflix, wrote a book called That Will Never Work. <laughs> uh, the birth <laughs> of Netflix and the amazing life of an idea. Well, uh, whoever said that was obviously wrong. One thing that I guess shouldn't surprise me. Um, I guess the fact that it does is shows, uh, says more about me, I guess. But uh, there were a lot of female empowerment books that came up that uh, were really interesting. Untamed, yeah. Glennon Doyle's memoir, uh, was also a bestseller this year. Uh, it was mentioned by, I believe, four different people. And uh, one of our uh, people, Mary Max from uh, Wells Fargo, called it uh, an authentic and empowering kick in the tail so that's, <laughs> which uh, that should just be blurbed on the cover i'm definitely all in when it comes to female empowerment and books on that subject just saying well it was great to catch up with bloomberg pursuits deputy editor james gaddy check out that list on the best books business books of 2020 it's online in the magazine and on the bloomberg terminal from the best business books of 2020 to some of the best known names in the world on how to lead it's all in a book by the carlisle group's david rubenstein he's coming up next you're listening to bloomberg business week and this is bloomberg this is bloomberg business week with carol masser from bloomberg radio safe to say we didn't have a playbook on how to get through the global pandemic and now we just may thanks to a book out by david rubenstein he's the co-founder and co-executive chairman of the private equity firm the carlisle group david is also host of peer-to-peer conversations on bloomberg radio and bloomberg tv his new book it's entitled how to lead wisdom from the world's greatest ceos founders and game changers he talked about the book and more with bloomberg quick takes tim stenovec and me we started though with how his interest in leadership, how it all began. When I was little, I was always interested in learning how other people became prominent and famous, and I used to read about them, and I guess I couldn't stop asking people questions. So my mother would say, you know, be polite, don't ask mm-hmm. people so many questions, but uh, I wasn't able to resist. So dozens of leaders you, you spoke to for this, Dr. Anthony Fauci, Oprah, Jeff Bezos, Marilyn Hewson. Um, is there a common thread that runs through all of their journeys? that you took away from the conversations? Sure. All of them uh, came from, I would say, middle class, lower middle class, or blue-collar families. None of them were really extremely wealthy. Uh, They worked their way up. They came from uh, a situation where they typically had some failures earlier in their career. They all tended to have a vision. They were very persistent. They knew they wanted to get something done. They were willing to share the credit with people, highly uh, honest and a lot of integrity. And they rose up in, case, in, in situations where there was a lot of uh, crisis, you could say. In other words, great leaders overcome crises, and many of them overcame crises and really showed their leadership skills during those crises. So, David, I wonder, if you're not a leader as a kid or as a teenager or at college, does that necessarily mean you won't be a, kid, a leader later in life? I mean, do you, do you have to start showing some traits, basically, early on? I wondered if that was also a commonality between some of the folks you've talked to. 
most of them were not leaders when they were very young. In fact, if you take a look at the last, let's say, dozen presidents of the United States, maybe only Bill Clinton would be somebody who would have been said, as a young person, this person could be president of the United States. And the same is true in other areas. I certainly was not a great leader when I was younger, and uh, many people were not famous uh, when they were young for being Rhodes Scholars or Supreme Court clerks or, or Heisman Trophy winners. People who become great leaders later in life basically have a tortoise and hare approach. They've worked their way up, they've learned their, some skills, and ultimately luck uh, helps them get, get forward. But uh, if you think of your, take your own high school class, whoever the, seat, the, the senior leader was, the mm-hmm. student body president, what happened to that person? You know, sometimes yeah. you, know, you don't know because they didn't <laughs> become famous. Right. I often thought the people in my high school class were going to be conquering the world, and then I've never heard of from some of them again. Yeah, it's interesting. Mine, mine is a pulmonologist in California. He's doing well. <laughs> he's doing okay. Yeah, he's okay. doing okay. <laughs> he's busy during the COVID pandemic. But, um, David, it struck me that you said that this common theme is that the people came from this middle-class background. I'm, I'm wondering, right. we talked a lot about this idea of a K-shaped recovery. The middle class has gotten smaller in the United States. Do you think it's still possible for people to work the, their way up? The American dream, I think, still lives on, but there's no doubt there's an underclass in our country now that for racial or other reasons has fallen further and further behind. And I think COVID is going to bring them even further and further behind because if you don't have technology in the, in the COVID era, you're just, you're just not able to really survive. So think about all the families that don't have high-speed Internet at home or can't afford to have childcare for their children or can't afford to send the schools right now. So that's a sad situation. So I do think that the American dream is becoming more elusive for many, many people in this country. But there are obviously are people who still believe in the American dream and have come from reasonable backgrounds and, and can work their way up. And obviously some people from the worst backgrounds can work their way up, but the odds are harder and harder. Well, when you look at the kind of bigger picture, David, in terms of our economy and the future of it, and you watch what's going on in other nations like China, who's definitely on a mission to certainly develop some more sophisticated industries and, and certainly develop their domestic eco- economy, do we need to figure out some new policies and what might those policies be so that the American dream is not more elusive and that it is you know, available to more and more Americans, especially at the lower socioeconomic scale? There's no doubt that our creativity in this country is the envy of the world. Silicon Valley and all the kind of technologies that have been developed there are the envy of the world. But we don't have the population base that China does. And as China becomes more and more capitalistic, I think it's actually going to, you know, bypass us in size in terms of economy. The United States will probably be in our lifetime the second largest economy in the world, not the largest. But you can still rise up and have a very great life in a second largest economy in the world. But we should recognize that China will be a competitor increasingly in the, in the economic world, and it's going to be difficult for some of us to accept that fact, but it's a reality. If we had one new policy that the incoming Biden administration would put into effect, let's say in their first year, that would help some of those Americans that have been left behind, what, would you, what do you think it should be? No member of Congress can get their pay unless we pass bipartisan legislation uh, that addresses some of the problems. Obviously, that's tongue-in-cheek. But clearly, uh, the Congress... I actually like it. Yeah, I'm here, just going to put it here, here. <laughs> but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> so I, I think, obviously, the, the, the country doesn't work as well as we would like it to work. Yeah. And we haven't seen bipartisan legislation for a long, long time. And, and we, we have a perils of Pauline every time the budget is about to expire. So we have to do a better job. I don't know whether the new president can do that or not. But clearly, the, the system isn't working as well as the founding fathers intended. That's for sure. I hope to interview Joe Biden when he uh, takes office or before he takes office. I'd like to talk to him. I've known him for a long time, but I have never interviewed him, so I'm looking forward to that.
David, if if you'll indulge us, I'd love to go through some of the names on your list because it is quite a lineup. Um, and just kind of what comes to mind in terms of their leadership and just talking to them. Jeff Bezos. Well, Jeff is a person who started relatively late. Uh, when you think about it, the company's not until 1994 that he started, but he's now built it into the company, which is now one of the best known companies in the world, and he's become the richest person in the world. But he still has a great deal of, of, of uh, humility, I would say, and a pretty good sense of humor. And I, I think the interview was one of the most interesting ones in the book. Think about it. Uh, many, many times the richest person in the world over the past half century have been people who have been relatively reclusive. Howard Hughes, nobody really knew him. J. Paul Getty, nobody really knew him. Uh, Bill Gates and, and Jeff Bezos, both are pretty accessible, and you can get a hold of them, you can see them, you can talk to them. It's not, not quite what it used to be. And I love in your book that when you talk about Jeff Bezos, that you had an opportunity, is it right, to have a 1% equity stake in the company and you passed yes. on it? <laughs> well, we actually had an opportunity to have about a 20% oh, okay. we passed on that. We did get, we did get 1%, oh, you did get 1% we forgive sold me. that at the IPO, so we thought it was going nowhere. That was our biggest mistake. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> Could be worse. Uh, what about when it comes to someone like Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who we lost earlier this year? Yeah, she was a person who weighed about 100 pounds when I interviewed her at the 92nd Street mm. Y in New York. Uh, 90 of those pounds were her brain. Mm. Incredibly smart person, but it's very difficult to interview in this sense. Um, when you ask somebody a question in an interview, you expect an answer within a second or so. But she would pause for 20 seconds or so, and you'd say, oh, oh is she having a senior moment? Can she not hear me? It was an offensive question. But she was actually thinking about what mm. she wanted to say and then would say it in paragraph form. So she was very, very good. Well, and what about someone like Oprah Winfrey, which is just, I think, for all of us, would just, I think, be so nervous sitting down with her. But what was that like? Well, it's hard to interview the greatest interview of them all, perhaps. Yeah. But uh, I've known her a little bit, and uh, so it wasn't quite the first time I'd met her. So it was it was okay, and uh, it, it went well. But, you know, she didn't really need an interviewer. I mean, she's uh, she was giving a master class on how to be interviewed and how to interview. So I was just mostly sitting there watching. But what do you want to know as a leader? Like, these, this is all about leadership. And what was it that just kind of stood with you about her? Well, she is somebody that came from very, very poor right. background. And now that she's become very famous and wealthy, she's trying to give back. She's involved in philanthropy. But she, her greatest skill set, she would say, is not being an interviewer, but being a listener. And she has empathy with the people she mm. interviews. And that's what she says is her strength. What about Yo-Yo Ma? Well, Yo-Yo is somebody I've come to know pretty well through the Kennedy Center, and he's a person that, you know, yes, he's the best known and the best cellist in the world, but that's not what he cares about at this point in his career. He's about 65 years old. He cares about other things. He wants to perpetuate the idea that the arts make people better better people, better humans. And so he's really interested in, in, in getting people to learn more about the arts, not just listening to him play. So he spends at least half his life now trying to get people to become more familiar with the arts and appreciate the arts, all kinds of arts. And so he's an infectious personality. And he's only changed a little bit because he's a person that doesn't like to shake hands. He likes to hug people. And in the, in the COVID area, it's harder to hug people. So he probably had to change his technique there. Well, I have to say, um, one of the things I like about the holiday season, David, is the Kennedy Center honors. Um, I still talk about Led Zeppelin right. and <laughs> Hart uh, right. doing Stairway to Heaven. There's like nothing like it. But I do look forward to it. And I think about the importance of arts and culture in our community. And I do wonder about the hit that it is all taking because of the pandemic, everything being shut down. Yep. You know, what are your hopes and expectations when we get on the other side of this? Well, the performing arts world has been decimated, and I would say probably 10% of performing arts uh, 
arenas or the stadium or, or, or uh, venues are not going to probably reopen again. Well, David, what do you think the role of the federal government has to be in terms of, you know, we can go through a list, whether it's cultural institutions, um, arts and entertainment. I look at the restaurant community, which I think is part of the fabric and culture of our, you know, major cities and our society. And they are also getting decimated. What's the responsibility of the federal government where it feels like that has really been forgotten? Well, yeah, suppose you work in a food truck, suppose you work in a mm-hmm. uh, restaurant, uh, you know, you're probably not going to be uh, employed that readily right now. And it's a tough situation. Many of these people are not people who can readily go get another job so so easily. So it's very tough. I hope the most important thing we do in the next week or so is pass some legislation that will actually help with the economy and help these people that need it the most. And we know there are a lot of people out there struggling. David, by the way, worked as a lawyer in the Senate and in the White House during the Carter administration. That was David Rubenstein, co-founder, co-executive chair of the Carlyle Group, host of peer-to-peer conversations on Bloomberg Radio and TV. Check out his book, How to Lead. He was talking with Bloomberg Quick Take anchor Tim Stenovic and me. That wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. More ahead in our next hour, including the stats on our virtual working from home world, plus paving the way to a more sustainable and regenerative future of fashion. And he played with the Rolling Stones, the Allman Brothers, and Eric Clapton and more. Find out why he's the subject of a new documentary called The Tree Man. That's all coming up on Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. Coming up in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, all the crazy statistics on how much we are working from home. The folks over at Microsoft 365, they've got a ton of data on what we are all doing. Plus, making mushrooms into high-end fashion. That's the goal of Microworks. We check in with one of the co-founders. And the tree man, the musician who toured with the Rolling Stones, the Almond Brothers, Eric Clapton, and more, and who's now down on the farm. We kick off this hour with a story in the magazine about how in this world of COVID and perhaps more virus and germs to come, that if you want to make a building healthier, stop sanitizing everything. It's a great story from Projects and Investigations reporter Carolina Winter, who joined me and Bloomberg Quick Take anchor Tim Stenovec, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber, who kicked it off reminding us of our sanitizing craze that's also been covered in the magazine. I love this story. Um, and it's been uh, one that I, I was just really looking forward to publishing, in, in part because, as you know, Carol, we've we had a lice, a great Lysol yeah. story a couple of weeks ago, and it was you know the, the theme of that story was like sanitize everything, put Lysol <laughs> over everything. It's so effective at killing COVID, and this is like the counterpoint I think, which is look like when we when we do sanitize things, we annihilate everything, and yeah, sure that gets rid of COVID, but but how much do we really understand about this the really small stuff? And that's where Caroline's uh, reporting comes in because there's actually this little mini movement that's that says we're actually doing a lot of harm. And I think this makes it really it, it's especially relevant right now in New York as a snowstorm starts coming down. Right. Uh, that we're all going to be trapped indoors for the next couple months. And it's all about indoor environments. So so Caroline, take us into the world of science and what we don't know about what's going on inside of buildings right now. Yeah, sure. Well, so we're we're actually trapped inside a lot of the time. Statistics show that in the West, um, humans spend 90% indoors. Americans spend 93% about that in inside buildings and cars. And there's a lot of research showing that 
our disconnect from the outdoor world is is linked to a huge range of really serious chronic diseases. And um, and of course now we know that SARS also spreads much more easily indoors. And so a lot of experts are asking, you know, what how do you make the indoors healthier? And um, the understandable the understandable tactic has been to just, you know, whip out the bleach and just bleach bomb everything, <laughs> you know, install air sanitizers, get your antimicrobial coatings. And the people I spoke with, they said, um, you know, this, this, it, it, it makes, <laughs> it makes a lot of sense just from a, just, you know, we've, we've long wanted to just annihilate any, all pathogens. Um, but this may have really serious consequences for our long-term health and may also not be helping very much against SARS, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, so, yeah. Caroline, I think what's kind of interesting too is this whole idea of these indoor microbes. Um, I just find it fascinating. And you talk about the microbiome of the built environment. And I love this. I wrote on the story when I was taking notes, ew, which encompasses trillions of microbes, <laughs> including bacteria, fungi, and viruses. I mean, there's so much stuff in these closed spaces that we live in and consider a haven, a safe haven, and they're not necessarily. Yeah, no, it's true. There are trillions and trillions of these. There's studies showing that there are actually an equal concentration of viruses as, as bacteria in indoor air. And what we have to realize is that there's no way we'll ever get rid of all of this stuff. So no matter how clean you make it, I mean, there, the International Space Station is, is filled with microbes, even though they disinfect everything that goes inside of it. And so what we're doing potentially by cleaning like crazy is wiping out some of the good bacteria that we actually really need to be healthy and perhaps even creating um, more space for pathogens, including antibiotic-resistant bacteria, potentially, which would be a, you know, disaster. Let's actually dwell on that for a second because there is actually this ongoing study that you reference that that we, I think the the thrust of it is like what what if the idea is like there's actually benign bacteria that could be all over everything and that actually helps keep the bad stuff at bay just by taking up space. Can you talk more about that research? Yeah, yeah, this is a really um just amazing uh, amazingly interesting scientist um Jack Gilbert and he's doing he's doing a study right now in an undisclosed, un, in undisclosed hospital in California and the idea is really that if you sanitize everything and wipe off the microbes um and then somebody comes in and coughs there's plenty of space there's nothing there so the virus or whatever you know whatever germs they have can potentially take up root there and thrive. But he's, he hypothesizes that if you take harmless bacteria and, um, and, and colonize uh, uh, that, that same surface, then the person who comes in and coughs on the surface, the, there's, there's not as much chance for it to um, take up residence because it will be outcompeted for resources by the stuff that's already there. And so um, the results, there's there have been previous studies to that extent with really encouraging findings, and his, this one is a little bit more in-depth, but, um, but it's actually not that far-fetched. There are already all sorts of cleaners that people are using that um, apply this probiotic concept. Um, they, they, you're, there's spraying bacteria and the bacteria goes in and munches away dirt and stuff like that in, in, in the cracks and crevices where you may, potentially couldn't even get to with cleaners. And so it's, there's, 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 uh, it's kind of a new frontier and, and, um, and it's an exciting one. 
Okay, so put a bow on it. We only got a couple seconds left. Like, what's the one thing that that I should be doing as somebody who's going to be trapped inside for for months now? Uh, what what should we be doing, Caroline? Just got about twenty five seconds. Well, you sh- just try and think about aligning your buildings with nature as much as you can. Open the windows when you can, even if it's cold outside. I'm definitely up for that. Love the outdoors. That's Projects and Investigations reporter Carolina Winter, Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber, joining me and Bloomberg Quick Take anchor Tim Stenevec. Speaking of spending more time outdoors, are you wondering how much time you are actually spending online, indoors perhaps, working, and what it's doing to you? We've got that. It's coming up next. You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Last hour, we covered this week's cover story. It's about the urban exodus as a result of working from home and the impact that may have on the American economy. Well, as we watch the pandemic potentially impacting American migration, the virus we know affecting how we work, tracking how we are working from home is Jared Spataro. He's corporate vice president of Microsoft 365, who came armed with tons of data. We continue to see a, a surge of COVID, and that's changed the, the outside environment quite a bit. Um, we have really tried, as I indicated then, to just be students of the moment and try and take in data from as many sources as we can and then piece together a mosaic, a little bit of what's going on and where do we think it'll, it'll go. Some of the numbers for me are really pretty astounding. I'll give you a couple. Mm-hmm. Uh, thinking of one of our products called Microsoft Teams, this is a product that brings together, for instance, meetings and chat and team workspaces. Teams users have had 55% more meetings and calls per week now than they did pre-pandemic. In addition, the workday span in Teams, so that's the time between the first and the last active login, is up by over an hour in many countries in the world. In some countries, like Australia and Singapore, it's up by over two hours. And then that's even bleeding over into the weekends. Teams chats on the weekend have spiked 200%. So none of that's really changed. I mean, those trend lines have stayed pretty consistent. They have. Um, we saw some countries starting to head back. As an example, you know, in mm-hmm. the United States and Western Europe, there was this hope that we could kind of get back. But during the, the uh, spikes that we have seen in both places here in the winter, um, we've just continued to see people, you know, moving backwards kind of in their progression, deciding we need to stay remote for a while. So those trends just continue for us. I wonder, and I don't know if you guys are measure this, measuring this, so forgive me if I'm going to a place that you guys aren't, but I wonder about productivity because there is such a debate, Jared, about, you know, people working from home. Are they as productive? I mean, I felt like I was really productive at home and there were certain areas that I never were able to really make inroads on that I did at home and vice versa. So I just wonder what people are seeing. You know, there was a really good article in the Wall Street Journal today that I picked up on, and I I thought one of the uh, conclusions there is worth repeating maybe. It it says that the research essentially says, you know, productivity for a lot of people is up for all the reasons that you cite, but it's coming at a cost. Uh, Again, two data points that give us some sense. When we recently went out and around the world polled workers just across different countries, we found that over 30% of workers, and that was in a a pool of 6,000 people we asked, so 30% of them said that the pandemic can increase their sense of burnout at work. Imagine that, almost a third of people saying, I feel more burned out. And then a third of remote workers say that the lack of separation between work and life, so roughly about the same, is negatively impacting what they would call their well-being just overall. Well, and I wonder, you know, since you guys track this stuff, how much of it do you think, it was interesting, I was just talking with Ken Swig of Swig Equities, who is very involved in the commercial real estate market um, in New York and elsewhere around the country, and just this whole concept of working from home 
you know, how much of it sticks ultimately going forward? And I'm just curious, Microsoft is a company, right, that has said, you guys want to work from home, you can continue doing that you know, after the pandemic, how much of some of the trends that we're seeing, uh, you know, after hours, weekend, how much of it do you think ultimately sticks? When we look at what people are learning during this pandemic, they are learning that in, in many instances, they can use digital connections to more easily, more, more conveniently connect with other people when they previously had relied on physically being present, you know, right with someone. And so then if we kind of translate that into what are they saying about work, post-pandemic, we found that um, 52% of, excuse me, um, 82% of managers expect to have more flexible work from home policies post-pandemic. So over 80% of managers saying, yeah, we expect that we will give people the option to work from home. 71% of employees want to continue to work from home at least part-time. And part-time in many ways, as we're seeing the data come in, is at least two days a week. So that's a pretty big change from pre-pandemic. I think almost everyone felt like they needed to show up at work. If you imagine your workforce where just across a week, people would choose two of those days not to be there. We think even if just that sticks, it will dramatically change the dynamic of how people are getting their work done. And when you guys are checking out, you know, when people, you're doing your research and gathering the data, I mean, you're talking about employees, companies from all different types of industries, correct? That's correct. Yeah, we go across all different types of industries and we try to be broad based. That one survey I just cited a moment ago, for instance, with 6,000 workers across the world. So across different nations in all different industries. So we're not just looking at one. We're trying to get a, a really nice broadly segment size so that we can make sure we see the trend. Well, and I wonder if you can and, you know, give me some insight into, you know, with that promise of a vaccine here and on the horizon for, for most workers, how quickly do you think we see employers kind of, you know, get workers back in the office? Sure. We, we think that it's going to take time for the vaccine to roll out. And so we'll see that kind of roll out over time. We, we love the fact that we're seeing the vaccine go to those that need it most, perhaps healthcare workers and others. So we think that you look at 2021 and it won't be uh, all of a sudden. We think that there will be a long time being in this hybrid state. Uh, our announcement has been that people won't have to come back to yeah. work or we won't even be open back to work until the summer. Uh, and so July of 2021 is what we've talked about earlier yeah. this year. We're hearing a lot of that too here on the East Coast. Jared, one of the um, stats when we did the panel together that stuck out for me is you guys actually, are there some research, and I think you guys were involved in it or led it, on um, brainwaves and what happens uh, when we're in a video meeting. Can you share some of that with our audience? You bet. I think all of us uh, who have been involved in kind of these virtual meetings have, have felt a sense of fatigue. And so we were pretty curious about that early on, wondering, mm -hmm. you know, was it was it just made up or were we actually feeling something? So we went into the lab and actually uh, put these sensors on people, allowed them to both interact in person and then interact in virtual meetings. What we found wasn't surprising if you're in online meetings, but there was science now behind it. It turns out that these online meetings really do tax our brain more. Uh, they make it more difficult for us to concentrate. They make it more difficult for us to stay in the meetings and be productive. So that was really interesting. Uh, from there, we decided that we, there probably was some innovation that was going to be necessary. And so we did create some kind of product features that were meant to address that in teams. The things that we found that are making a big difference um, consist somewhat of technology and somewhat of just us learning new ways of doing things. So let me tell you one that was surprising to me. One of the, the pieces of research that we did that now has made its way into the product is the idea of a virtual commute. Awesome. Not to be able to, uh, not to have to jump into a car and, 
uh, or a subway and commute into work. But what we found was that people were having a really high, hard time creating boundaries between their work and life. And so we've mm-hmm. actually introduced a bot into the team's environment that allows people to kind of ramp up into their workday, have a, just a little bit of a buffer, and then to ramp down out of the workday to really process what happened. Yeah, just a reminder of how our physical commutes to and from work were really a necessary process of winding up and winding down our days, and now how it's being done virtually. That's Jared Spataro, Corporate Vice President of Microsoft 365. The pandemic, we know, we say it's so much impacting so much of our world, including an interest in sustainability. One company has taken that to heart and is creating a new material out of mushrooms to be used in high-end fashion. That's coming up next. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of this week's highlights on our daily radio show and podcast. And you might recall we recently had a conversation about sustainability with the head of Patagonia, Jenna Johnson. Sustainability in making clothes and products that they sell. Overall, the global ethical fashion market size reached about $6.35 billion last year, and it's expected to grow to $8.25 billion in 2023. Sophia Wang is co-founder of Michael Works. She knows about that. She is combining art and science to create sustainable fashion materials. She tells us how they're doing it. What we are doing is uh, developing advanced biomaterials from a natural material called mycelium. So mycelium refers to the fine networks of threads that form the vegetative part of the organism that most people are familiar with as a mushroom. Mm -hmm. So as a visual, you can imagine the mushrooms you see above ground and mycelium as the rooting structure that extends below ground. So we've developed a advanced materials platform called Fine Mycelium, and it amplifies mycelium's natural capacity to bind to itself and other materials, creating strong interwoven three-dimensional networks that enable strength and durability in our materials. And our first product is called Reishi. It's a new class of biomaterial that is a sustainable option for fine leather that is non-animal, non-plastic, and we are introducing it via the luxury fashion and footwear market. And are you just, is it just starting to go out to people who actually make products? Because that's it. You're, you're providing this material, right? And then it's up to the retail world, the fashion world to then shape it into products, correct? Correct. Yes. Our um, partners are brands and we've actually been um, sharing material with and working with them collaboratively for um, several years now, very closely um, iterating on, on product prototypes. Well, give me an idea. Do, are they brands that we all know about? Oh, yes. They're really exciting household name brands, some of the most elite and respected brands in the world. And I am so excited to soon be able to share who they are, which we will be able to do in the coming months. Okay, interesting. So so they've been, have they actually been making products and selling products or just kind of experimenting with it? So they have been in the prototyping and testing okay. uh, phase. And and so um, we have not yet launched for sale, but that is coming soon. That's really fascinating. What's the, okay, so th- one thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, sometimes the sustainable process is taxing on the environment. And I do wonder about this. I've talked about uh, this with folks who are involved in sustainable farming or hydroponic farming, that there's a lot of electricity involved. So that goes kind of counter to being good for the environment. The process itself, is it taxing on the environment? Is it neutral or carbon neutral on the environment? What do we know about that? 
So we've been measuring um, the carbon impact of our product and process since actually 2006. Um, that's when we first started doing preliminary LCAs, um, life cycle analyses on our product and process. And so what I can tell you is that, you know, we're starting with mycelium, which is one of the Earth's most powerful and abundant agents of regeneration and carbon sequestration. Um, mycelium plays an important and symbiotic role in the health and regeneration of many of our ecosystems. Adding to that, mycelium grows on um, very widely available plant and wood-based biomass. So you mm -hmm. can think of that as by byproducts from other um, agricultural and lumber-based industries. So we're starting with um, a process of essentially recycling and adding value to existing plant biomass and bringing in um, a powerful carbon sequestering agent. And so, you know, we just did another cycle of a um, LCA screening, and we're really excited to be able to bring um, that data forward in the near future. Um, all the data that we have right now supports uh, the potential impact that we have to to bring a very beneficial, sustainable material to market. It sounds like, um, Sophie, you guys have been obviously working on this for a long time, kind of perfecting it. You're working with brands who are testing out, you know, um, making fashion, if you will, and, you know, from from your, from the product, from Rishi, am I saying it correctly? Rishi. Rishi, forgive me. Yes. And so, no but I just do wonder, so how were you guys like funding this and supporting it? Was it VC money? Was it angel money? Were you bootstrapping? Oh, yeah. In the first few years, it was bootstrapped. And then we got some seed money through a uh, biotech accelerator based in San Francisco, IndieBio. And we closed our Series A uh, back in 2019. And, and we've just announced the closing of our Series B, $45 million in financing. Wow. So, what, so, okay. So, I'm just thinking as consumers, when is it that we're all like talking about reishi or understanding like mycelium, like that platform? When will it become kind of, you think, part of the norm? I mean, it's obviously your hopes and expectations for it. But I mean, realistically, when does it really start to have an impact? I think that I've already seen the impact, of course, from my perspective, being at the forefront of developing this. But in the, you know, right. let's say seven to 10 years I've been thinking about it, I've seen widespread um, growth and people knowing what mycelium is and also um, inspiring other companies to develop their own mycelium-based materials. So I think um, with our launches, launches, which are planned for the near future, we're going to make a huge impact in visibility of the material and, and this new technology. I'm looking forward to hearing more on the partnerships and brands that they are working with to make that impact. That was Sophia Wang, co-founder of MycoWorks. Up next, mixing rock and roll legacy with sustainable tree farming. We'll hear from the musician who played with rock icons Mick, Eric, and Dwayne. Straight ahead on Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. That's Chuck Lavelle playing with Eric Clapton. And if you're looking for something to watch this weekend, how about a new documentary? It chronicles the musician, singer, songwriter Chuck Lavelle, who has spent half a century going around the world with the Rolling Stones, touring with the Allman Brothers, Eric Clapton, and more. Chuck is also an environmentalist and tree farmer, and he's friends with the acclaimed director, filmmaker, and photographer Alan Forrest, who directed this new documentary. That friendship led to the making of The Tree Man. Alan and I had known each other for um, a number of years because he had asked me to play on a guitar player uh, session that he was managing and promoting 
And so I went up uh, to Ohio for the session. Everything went fine. Then there was this long gap where I didn't really talk to Alan. And uh, we had this concept to do a documentary. And we were in Las Vegas uh, to do a show with the Rolling Stones, which unfortunately got canceled because uh, Mech got laryngitis. Yeah. And Alan happened just happened to be in, in uh, Las Vegas and out of the blue called me up. So we talked about it. He convinced me that he really, really wanted it. And I'm so glad that we got together and did this. And uh, we shot over three and a half years. Wow. And he just did a masterful job, not only of shooting during all that time, but of weaving the stories together. So uh, very, very pleased. Well, let's talk about that, Alan, because, you know, right at the stop, at the top, you know, there are the three storylines of Chuck's life, his musical life, his life as an environmentalist, but also you mm-hmm. wove in his personal life and his love for his wife. How did you think about weaving those stories together? Because it's really cool. You go from kind of making bacon to talking about the Almond Brothers. You go from talking Rolling Stones and seeing Mick, Keith, and Ronnie, and then talking about setting burns and forests. It's really wonderful how it's all woven together alan oh well thank you carol um and thanks for having us on yeah I, you know i think chuck's story uh, i knew it from the outset just when he was wanting to do this and i really wanted to do it you know i, I knew he had a great story uh to tell and it was just kind of it just needed to come out you know and uh this this opportunity i wanted to take and make this film as unique as as he is you know and he is a salt of the earth kind of guy. Uh, he never takes more than what he he needs, um, but he gives back way more uh, than the common guy, you know, and not only musically, but also with his forest life and also his marriage is kind of works the same way. I mean, it's it's a real testament to be in the rock and roll business and have a marriage of 47 years. <laughs> Uh, you know what I mean? But, yeah. uh, and he also met her in a very unique way at Capricorn Records. So, right. um, you know, Rose Lane worked there right when you walked in the doors and, and he met her at such a young age and they, they, they fell in love and um, they've been together ever since, as the movie says, you know. Yeah, it actually, you know, sets goals for all of us in a relationship. It's really, it's really lovely. Chuck, I mean, what did you think about, I mean, three, three and a half years, as you said, the process of it, what, what was it that you hoped ultimately was shown as you worked with Alan on this? You know, my main motivation, Carol, was to wind up with a document for my family, for Mm -hmm. grandchildren, for future uh, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, up the road and not only of my life or you know uh, my, myself and my wife rose lane but also for the times you know to to have a document of what the touring was like with the stones at this particular point in time uh talk about some of the things we did in the past with the almond brothers band and yeah. you know some of the other um, musicians and artists that I've just been so privileged to work with. I imagine that there had to be some serious logistical issues during filming. I mean, how do you travel the world, record interviews with, I think, some 80 people during a lockdown? <laughs> well, it's it, it was, uh, we we kind of finished right before lockdown happened. Okay. But, it, but you know, for, for those three years, yeah, you're right. We went, you know, Europe like seven, eight times and back and forth. And, you know, one day you're with Clapton, the next day you're with Gilmore. I mean, uh, it was like living Chuck's life on warp speed going, uh, you know, back with all the people he had played with, uh, which which you were trying to bring that into the story, you know. So it's it's always a challenge when you're when you're traveling with 3000 pounds of gear 
on a smaller crew to try to save money because, you know, we knew we were going to interview, well, we could have potentially interviewed 80 people um, and we really got them all, you know, so it it just, we had to kind of stretch the budget out to to make it happen. But that's kind of how we did it. So Chuck, I got to ask you, because as we talked about earlier, woven through the film is your love of the environment. uh, And you talk about it a lot. Where did that all come from? And I know you talk about in the film when your wife inherited a farm, um, but just talk to us a little bit about this and, and what you're hoping, the message you're hoping to get out to people. Yes, well, it, it is definitely all my wife's fault. <laughs> you guys uh, always blame us. That's always what happens. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the fact is that Rose Lane's family uh, has been connected to the land literally for generations as farmers ca- uh, tending cattle and livestock, uh, tending forest land and row cropping. And, you know, when we first got together, and uh, as we pointed out earlier, it's been 47 years now. Yeah. Uh, I began to get a feel for the passion, the love, the dedication of the land that this family uh, had. And in 1981, she inherited some land from her grandmother, and it became our responsibility to carry on what I saw as a heritage of stewardship. And so I went on a little you know, journey, uh, educational journey, going to the library, checking out books on land use and so forth. And Uh, The short of it is that I had kind of an aha moment when I realized, well, where does that thing that has given me so much joy and such a great career come from? The piano, Mm. of course, it comes largely from the resource of wood and as does most other musical instruments. So I I had a personal connection and I really wanted to study forestry and learn more about, you know, long term sustainable forestry. It's certainly something very near and dear to all of us. And I think this year of 2020, dealing with the pandemic, dealing with inequities, but also, you know, seeing the environment, um, you know, what happens when the economy shuts down and the skies are blue again and you can see mountain ranges, but also watching those terrible fires in California. I mean, Alan, I feel like in so many ways, this film is just spot on. Yeah, you know, four years ago when we started it, we we didn't really know that the California fires were going to take off and, and be so much in the news in the last year. And I think some of those practices that uh, Chuck talks about with fire breaks and some of that stuff, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, you're hoping that uh, environmentalists can take a, 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 you know, maybe step back and look at some of those practices and you know, you might have to give a little to keep a lot, you know, sometimes. And I think that's kind of the message of, of the film. And, you know, I, I think if your listeners want to check it out, you know, they can they can find it on VOD now, which would put mm-hmm. them into like iTunes, Apple iTunes or Amazon, and they can just search the tree man. But I think seeing Chuck's story um, and, and watching what he brings to the table with the environment um, it's just a big piece of the movie yeah. uh, that you don't really see coming. You know, you, you know, he has this uh, just giant body of work that he's done, not only on, um, you know, hits and helping other bands, but then these other, you know, humongous bands he's been touring with and playing with from the Almond Brothers to the Stones. It's just incredible it because if, if you had just one of those in your career, <laughs> It would have been a, a monumental career, but he's done this time and time again. A, a quick kind of word association with you, Chuck, if I can. Just briefly, if I say Rolling Stones, what comes to mind? 
fun. <laughs> I bet there are stories. Well, can I tell you, a colleague said to me that they once heard that Ronnie would start his day with four Guinnesses. Is that true? Oh, no. Listen, uh, Ronnie's <laughs> been clean and sober for a long time now, and he's got uh, a wonderful wife, Sally, and yeah. they have two two beautiful twin daughters that are just adorable and uh, Ronnie has got it together. I mean, it's amazing. And don't forget, he's probably the most popular contemporary uh, visual artist in the in the world today. Yeah, that's act- that's actually a, a really good point as well. Um, Almond Brothers, what comes to mind? Oh, and Southern Rock, mm. uh, you know, uh, paving the way for a new kind of music. Clapton. Oh, wow. Impeccable, gentleman, um, generous, and awesome. Southern Yellow Pine. Ooh, Southern Yellow Pine is everything to me. It's uh, where I am. It's who I am. It's where I live. And Rose Lane. Love, love, and more love. He's a rocker, he's an environmentalist, and, as you can tell, a romantic. Musician Chuck Lavelle, along with the director and filmmaker Alan Forst, on their new documentary, The Tree Man. That complete conversation can be found on our podcast feed. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune in daily to Bloomberg Business Week, Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. You can also hear more of our Bloomberg Business Week conversations. Download them at Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch us on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. And be sure to check out our Bloomberg Business Week Extra podcast this week with Prince Emmanuel Filiberto de Savoia, who did the unthinkable opening his first brick-and-mortar restaurant in the L.A. neighborhood of Westwood all during the pandemic. Bloomberg Business Week, it's available on newsstands now, online, and, of course, on the Bloomberg. Have a safe weekend, everyone. This is Bloomberg.